what a good morning. What a good morning to be together. What good and wonderful things that the Lord is saying. Um, we, we are blessed. We're blessed in so many ways. So we're beginning a whole new series this morning that I'm very excited about um, on the parables of Jesus. And we're going to be in this for, I don't know, a month and a half or so. Um, and this is another one of those sermon series. I was looking ahead at the schedule, and this is another one of those sermon series where we're actually going to have lots of voices sharing during this series. Uh, Ethan made a comment uh, recently. Um, I overheard him saying, you know, that we're, we're speaking of God's blessing, that we're really blessed in this church with lots of people who can preach and teach and, and share. And, and when I heard him say that, uh, I, I started really thinking about it, and I was like, gosh, we, we really are. Like, we have so many different voices that, that get up here and, and teach and share and those kinds of things. But at the same moment, I actually started to realize that not everyone may know all the people um, who get up here and speak very well, uh, or speak very much. Um, and it really may seem unusual to have other people other than the senior pastors speaking that often, like to, to go that many weeks without having, you know, maybe Josh or I um, up here speaking. And it, it just occurred to me that that might give the impression that we're a little flippant <laughs> about who we like hand the mic to or any of those things. Um, but I, as I was just reflecting on the gifts that God's given us, um, it just occurred to me, like, how many people we have, like, the vast majority of people that get up here and speak have this, like, extended history in the vineyard and lots of teaching experience um, and just how blessed we are to have that. So I actually thought I might just, um, it might be helpful if I just kind of run down real quick, maybe even some of the people that you're going to hear from in this series, just to kind of let you know what to expect and, um, and, and maybe get to know these people a little bit better. Um, actually, we'll start with last week. Chris, where'd he go? There he is. You know, Chris, who spoke last week, you, you guys might not know where he came from, but before moving to North Carolina, Chris was in San Francisco, and he was on the teaching team there at a vineyard, um, Mid-Peninsula Vineyard. I got that right, right? Um, in, in San Francisco, and has all this history and shared vineyard values and, and theology from there. Melissa, who just shared that word about God's goodness and blessing, uh, she actually came to us from a four-square church, Hope Chapel, um, but that's very like-minded, you know, to the vineyard and our theology and our practice and the gifts of God, and she was the women's pastor um, and on the teaching team there. Uh, Matt Stout, who you're going to get to hear in this church for the first time later in this series, he can't be here this morning, he's, he's a, a Holly Springs firefighter, and he's on shift today, uh, but he's speaking for the first time in this church, and, and he actually comes to us from a vineyard up in Pennsylvania, the Blue Root Vineyard, where he was on staff as a, a youth pastor and on the teaching team there. Uh, Adrian, who shared that second word, she spoke um, a while back on the Living Stones, and she's going to be speaking again in this series, and she comes to us from a vineyard in Charlotte, where she was on staff. Um, so, oh my gosh, we are, we are so truly, and there's so many more, like, you know, like Brant and Jeremy and Bev and William, like there's all these people with this deep vineyard history. Um, so thank you, God, that we are blessed because we really do value lots of different voices, not just Josh and I getting up here and speaking, but there's so much he can say to us through other people. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to like, I don't know, like a little administrative footnote here um, before I get started, you know, just that, that the people you hear um, so many of them have such rich vineyard history and teaching experience, though all that to say, we always still discern, right? Um, the things that we learn and share, that we always make sure that the things are shared from these mics, mics, um, you know, match with the things that are said in here, right? That, that they jive in and that they are unified and in line. Oh, by the way, I brought these. These have been riding around with me for like 
when did we go to that conference? July. So for like two months <laughs> from our, our vineyard conference, you know, you guys know when we go away to conferences, we always like to grab little goodies for you guys. Um, these are these are all repeats of things I've gotten in former conferences. But there's like little vineyard music stickers and those little um, guitar picks with a little Spotify code on there and like some little vineyard music buttons and stuff. So I don't know. I, I, I guess here I'll just throw this in the front row. And if you guys want to come up like at the end and and get you a little like swag goodie or whatever. Um, you're welcome to do that. They've been riding in my little bag for months. Um, anyway, the the stickers are not water bottle proof. Just so, I mean, they, they, they're not the vinyl stuff. So maybe like a guitar case is good, but not a water bottle. Anyway, all right. So let's get um, started then with our series on the parables of Jesus. So every week in this series, we're going to be digging into a different parable that Jesus used to teach his disciples and the crowds that were following him and, and seeing what we can glean from that, what we can get from that. But today in this first week, I want to spend the vast majority of the time actually setting up for you um, what the parables are all about before we get to one specific one. <clears throat> I want to spend some time talking about the nature of these parables. Wh what are they like? How did Jesus see them and use them? How did he perceive their meaning? How, what meaning did he put in them? You know, what these parables are and what they aren't, what they're like, how he used them, what they're primarily about. What are the themes in these parables that aren't the themes that we might want to impose on them and the meaning that we want to impose on them? And then finally, how we should actually approach these parables as we study them and as we read them and as we try to understand what Jesus was doing through telling them so that what we get out of them is the meaning he actually intended instead of something that we have placed on them from our own culture or experience or perspective or whatever. So let's just start with, well, what is a parable? So parables are basically just short stories, right? They don't have to be Christian. There are parables that aren't Christian parables, but they're usually these short little stories or anecdotes that are meant to illustrate or impart some sort of meaning, purpose, lesson, truth, something like that. So a modern example that wouldn't necessarily be a Christian one, how many of you guys have heard the story about the little boy walking down the beach and there's all these starfish that have washed up on the beach, like hundreds and hundreds of starfish, right? And the little boy is walking down the beach and he's picking up the starfish and he's throwing them back in the ocean, just super panicked and worried about what's going to happen to these starfish, right? And his dad's walking along behind him and his dad says, you know, son, what are you, what are you doing? Like, you can't save all of these. There's too many. Like, how are you possibly going to make a difference? And the little boy reaches down, and he picks up another starfish, and he throws it in the water, and he looks at his dad, and he said, what made a difference to that one? You know, and that's a parable. That's a modern parable that's teaching us the lesson of you don't have to fix everything to make a difference, right? So we, we see parables, and we encounter parables all the time. There was one that Brant crafted himself. I don't know, if a number of months back, Brant, one of our elders, spoke, and he told a modern parable that he created about these bus routes and what it says about us depending on the bus that we pick, right? Like who's driving the bus, where's the bus going? And really the point being that the only bus we really want to be concerned with is the one that Jesus is driving headed towards his kingdom. But it was this modern parable that he crafted and, and illustrated the point he was trying to make and kind of clarified for us what, where it was he was going. But my next question is going to be, well, is that really what Jesus' parables did? It, was that how he structured his? Was that what his were about? So let's look specifically at what Jesus' parables are like, because they're not going to line up 100%. They are also short stories, right? I mean, some of them are as short as just a verse or two, very short. 
But then some of them are much longer, like you're probably familiar with the prodigal son, right? That's one of the most famous ones that lots of people know, and that's got a lot more text to it. Um, they're fictional. You know, the little starfish story is, it's probably not a true story. It's probably something someone crafted to illustrate that point. But Jesus's are fictional. We, these are things that he thought of to illustrate what he was trying to communicate. We are not meant to believe that these are actual real accounts of things that happened. They have truth in them in that they convey a truth, but they are not true in the sense that they're actual like recorded history, things he saw or whatever. So these are narratives that he, he crafted. And he often would look at the Old Testament prophets and take themes or imagery or bits of things from the prophets and adapt them so that his audience that was hearing these parables would say, oh, I recognize that. I remember when Isaiah said that. I remember when Nehemiah said that. They were familiar with these Old Testament scriptures. And so when he would use these images, it would get their attention because they would know what that image was or what that scripture was. But he would often put a little twist on it to illustrate something new, something that his hearers weren't expecting. And so that's something that we can look for in these. So just to say that, that we're not expected to believe that these are actual events. If they were movies, they'd probably have that little tagline, you know, of any, any similarity to actual people or circumstances is purely coincidental kind of stuff, okay? Um, even though he does pull bits from the Old Testament. So I want to talk about a couple of key distinctives of Jesus's parables. And this will help us to learn what they're like and how he uses them so that we don't misunderstand what he's trying to say. The first one here is that Jesus' parables are not allegory. Now, if you're like an English kind of person or whatever, you know, that in your, your language classes, um, you know that allegory are these stories where it's just full of symbolism. It's like everything in that story represents something else, right? Like this thing has a meaning, and, like, and some of them are really like on the nose. Like, okay, they're not like hiding this at all. This is a little like silly you know and cliche but everything has meaning like everything in that story is trying to illustrate some point or some lesson and you can dig all of this meaning and symbol out of it but that Jesus's aren't like that he does use symbol he does have symbols in his teaching but not every little piece of detail in his parables are meant to carry weight some of them like I said are just to be there to be relatable to his listeners things that will catch their attention because it's something familiar to them. And if we're not careful, we can actually overthink these parables and miss the meaning because we try to assign certain symbols or representations or meaning to every little piece of the parable, okay? For example, I mentioned the prodigal son and how long it is. Now, I'm not going to read that, but just to mention, when that son comes home to his father, there's this beautiful, elaborate scene where the father meets his son with open arms, welcoming him back, and he puts this ring on his finger, and he puts the nicest robe on him and welcomes him in. Him in. And we could easily probably look at that story and be like, oh, what does that ring represent? What does that robe represent? But if we really dig into the parable, those things aren't standalone pieces and meaning of themselves. It's just this beautiful picture of the Father's lavish love and welcome, like we were talking about in pre-service prayer this morning. The Father's lavish welcome back to his Son. And it's just an instrument of that lavish love and that lavish welcome that doesn't carry meaning in itself. So if we try to do that too hard and, and overthink it, we can really miss the meaning. 
because some of them are just meant to be relatable bits, references to certain cultural distinctives or whatever. And the other thing that can happen is if we do that, like I said, Jesus will take these bits and twist them and throw something in there that we didn't expect. And if we try to put meaning on everything, when we get to Jesus's twist, it falls apart. <laughs> the theology falls apart. The metaphor falls apart. And we're like, well, wait a minute, then what's that supposed to mean? So we got to be careful with that. So the next key distinctive, unlike those modern parables that I mentioned a while ago, like the buses and the starfish and things like that, um, Jesus's parables are not, at least not primarily, but the majority, they are not intended as moral lessons. Now, things like Aesop's fables, you know, that we grow up with, those are moral lessons, right? Those fables are stories like um, the boy who cried wolf or um, uh, what's that other, the tortoise and the hare, you know? And those are stories that if you like pluck them out of their context and look at them, they hold a moral lesson, right? Don't lie. Nobody's going to believe you if you cry wolf, right? Perseverance wins, you know, slow and steady wins the race. These are truths and, and character traits or lessons or whatever that can, we can get from these stories. But that's actually not how Jesus's parables are structured. And that may surprise you when you think about a story, for instance, like the parable of the Good Samaritan. We have this story, and don't worry, Melissa, I'm not going to ruin it for you. But we have this story, right, where this guy is beaten and left for dead on the side of the road, and you have a couple of people who come by and pass him by, and then finally this person who comes and helps him. Well, is that not a story about being nice? Is that not a story about being kind and doing good and all that, you know, charity and empathy and all those good things? And actually, that's not the point of the parable at all. And that might surprise you. So something else is going on, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. Melissa's preaching that one in a few weeks. She's going to tell you what the real meaning of that parable is and, and walk you through that. So I'll leave that. So that's a teaser. I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good and exciting when she's, she and I were having a lunch or breakfast or something uh, the other week and talking about it. And it's, it's a really good, really powerful, um, neat parable, challenging parable, but it's, it's probably not at all about what you thought. All right. So Jesus was not using his parables to impart some cute little like snippet of, you know, memorable value tale of a right versus wrong or a certain character trait. And I want to say, to take a minute and let's think about this, because if we think that, if we have that misunderstanding of Jesus's parables as just a good moral teaching, it might be because we're looking at Jesus as primarily just a good moral teacher instead of a coming king coming to reign. And so it might be if we have that view of his teachings and his lessons that we're actually perceiving Jesus himself wrong. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's the reigning king. And so his parables are in line with that. And I think that's a really important message for us to hear this morning. So if we find ourselves viewing his parables in that way, maybe we need to reset the way we look at our Savior, Jesus, and who he's what he is and who he's about, what he's about. All right, so we'll get in just a second to what their purpose actually is if it's not just a good moral teaching. I want to finish these distinctives first. All right, one last key distinctive for this part is that Jesus' parables <laughs> actually didn't really help anybody understand anything at all. <laughs> like, if these are supposed to be, like, helpful illustrations, fail. <laughs> right? Have you ever read some of these? Yeah. It's like, What? What is his point? Like, they were talking about this, and he just, like, went off the deep end over here. Like, has he been listening to the conversation? What is he talking about? They're not very clear. 
you know, we get up here often on a Sunday morning and we'll tell like cute little stories or whatever that help illustrate our point and make it clear and we'll show you the scripture and we'll, we'll tell an anecdote from our life that hopefully emphasizes that. And you're like, oh yeah, I, I see how that works. No, not with Jesus. That is not how this was working. All right. That's not what his parables did. Uh, there's this really cute meme that Jesus, uh, Josh found this week about Jesus's parables, if you want to put the first slide up there. It says, one day, Jesus said to his disciples, the kingdom of heaven is like 3x squared plus 8x minus 9. And his disciples look, and Thomas looks and says, he's so confused, and he asks Peter, what does the teacher mean? And Peter says, ah, don't worry, it's just another one of his parabolas. You know, for a lot of us, Jesus's parables might be about as clear as the parabolas. Just for reference, the next image, here's what that parabola looks like, graphed. Like, now, if you look at that and you stress out, like, I, some of us probably feel that way about Jesus' parables, right? Like, what is he doing? What is he talking about? Some of us would rather try the algebra <laughs> than, than try to explain and understand the parable. So much, and the disciples felt this way, too. So much so that when Jesus was talking to all these guys, they finally pulled him aside and were like, why are you doing this? This is, this is from Matthew 13, which we're going to read out of in a minute if you want to be flipping there. But they asked him, why are you doing this? Why are you speaking in parables? Because obviously, if you want to make a clear, understood point, don't you want to lay it out there like as clearly as possible? Don't you want to be really explicit and straightforward in what you say so there's no misunderstanding what it is you're trying to do? Well, you would think. So what's going on here? Jesus isn't dense. He's not misunderstanding his context. He's not a bad teacher or preacher. He's doing something here very intentional. His parables were very intentionally opaque, and the difficulty in them was purposeful. Why? Why would he do that? Why were his parables so unclear? And the answer to this question is going to get us to the heart of their purpose. If we can answer this, we can understand what the purpose of his parables were and what they did. So there's this phrase, and it's this really important phrase that Jesus often says himself that's associated with him telling a parable. And it's this phrase right here. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is really important in us understanding how Jesus taught. How he taught the, the religious leaders of the time, how he taught those just rascals that were following him, those tax collectors and those sinners and those prostitutes, and how he taught his own disciples. And this, says, this phrase says a lot about what's going on. And he actually says it right before, remember I said the, the disciples came to him and said, why are you teaching in parables? Why are you doing this? This is the line right before they ask him that. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Why are you doing this? It's, it's, it's that close together. And so how Jesus responds to that question is going to tell us a lot about the meaning and the purpose of his parables. So let's go to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look in verse 9 through 17. Bye. Love you. Josh is going to sneak out and take our other kid to her, to her tournament game this morning. I wish I could go. You guys, I get so excited about soccer. I love watching my girls. Isn't it wonderful? Like when someone you love is doing well and having fun and excelling at something. All right. So Matthew chapter 13, verses 9 through 17. He's just told the parable of the sower, which we, you can also think of as the parable of those four soils, right? And that's actually what I think Matt's speaking on. So he'll dig into this a bit more for you. 
And he tells that parable, and then this is what happens. So let's read verses 9 through 17. He ends the parable, and there's that famous important line, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak in parables to the people? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak in parables. And there's a quote here. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Remember, Jesus liked to go back to Isaiah a lot and pull from the prophecies of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. So Jesus' parables, we said one of the things we're going to talk about this morning is what they're about. Jesus' parables had these really key themes to them, and they weren't really that broad. There were some really, really important paradigm-altering themes that Jesus' parables focused around, okay? Things that were primarily concerned with his kingdom and with Jesus as the kingdom bringer, okay? This was the subject of his parables. It was things like the surprising nature of his kingdom, right? How it just shows up on scene when you don't expect it, like it's there all of a sudden. Where did it come from? And it just shows up, and here you are confronted with this new kingdom. Like the way it starts so small, like, like a seed or like some yeast, and it grows into this huge thing that you never anticipated or expected. But look at how that happened. Look at how the kingdom did that. Look at how the kingdom bringer did that. His parables showed this new value and ethical system of the kingdom. This new way of being and doing and living and relating that was totally upside down and unlike the culture and the systems of the world. It was giving people a whole new perspective for how to see all the systems of the world, right? All the behaviors and the processes, a new way of perceiving things like, like power, and wealth, and generosity, and leadership, and inclusion, and relationship, and righteousness. It was totally wiping out this old way of seeing those things and bringing in a new kingdom lens, a new kingdom perspective for looking at those things. And so this phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, is very important because the implication is, and what Jesus said to his disciples, the implication is that there's going to be people who don't have ears to hear. Some, probably most, are going to miss the message of the kingdom. They're not going to understand what Jesus is doing. These paradigm-shifting themes were not exactly ideas everyone was real keen on. 
Because when you take away their old way of doing this, they lose power. <laughs> they lose relationship. They lose wealth, right? They lose importance. Because this new system, this new kingdom Jesus was bringing in required complete abandoned, abandoned to all the old stuff and a complete transformation to the new way of being and living, all right? So the message of ki the kingdom will not be received by everyone. It was that way when Jesus was preaching it, and it's that way today. And we see that in our world, right? It's true then, it's true now. And it's usually because of the rejection of the Savior himself that they don't receive Jesus as the Son of God, as the Savior sent to forgive sins, to bring this new kingdom. And so, like it says in the verses we just read, they're calloused, and their hearts are hardened, and they don't want to, and they can't comprehend the message of his kingdom. But even for those who did, here, here's the funny part, right? Even though for those who were embracing the kingdom and receiving Jesus as the Messiah, they were even a little thrown off, right? Even those who he would say had ears to hear and wanted to receive this message had a very different expectation and a very different mental picture of what his kingdom was and who he was and how this all worked, right? Like, remember, they were expecting this, this Messiah that was going to be a political Messiah. He was going to come in and deal with the Romans. He was going to, like, you know, kick, set the pagans straight. You know, he was going to take back David's throne and do all these things. And they had a very specific way they expected this to happen. And it's not what happened. That's not what this looked like. So even those who he would say did have ears to hear were a little thrown off by this. So what Jesus does is he takes these stories that he's crafted he takes these parables and he uses them to gather the attention of those who have ears to hear and to pull them in closer, right? The king has come, but it's not what you expect. So he uses these like clear as mud stories as an invitation to go deeper, to stick around and ask some questions like his disciples did, to hear more to meditate more, to ponder more, and see what's really going on beneath the surface. It's an invitation to draw closer, to see what he himself, as the kingdom bringer, is really all about. But you've got to want it. He's not going for the low-hanging fruit. You've got to want it. You've got to dig in. You've got to pursue. You know that our little motto out there on the wall, pursuing his presence. There has to be an active pursuit in our hearts. Let me give you an example from art. So if someone is trying to share with you like a certain emotion or experience or a certain thing that they've been through, they've got a couple of different ways they can do it, right? Like they can just be really blunt about it and be like, Here, hey, here's, here's what I'm going through. Like I'm struggling, you know, I'm having a hard time. This is how I feel, right? And, and doing that, okay, they can just state it. And that's, it's really clear, like the meaning's really obvious. Like they, they've been very transparent with you about the way they're feeling and what's going on. But how powerful or impactful is that really? How much are you going to stop and think about their struggle and what's happening? How much are you going to stop and consider what they've gone through? So alternatively, they could share their experience maybe in a more enigmatic way, something that requires a little more wrestling. So there's this picture of this sculpture. Anybody seen this before? Good. So this sculpture sits by a lake in Geneva, Switzerland. And when you look at it at first, it's kind of like, what is going on here? Like at first glance, it kind of looks like a uvula, like hanging down or something weird. Like what is that? But if you look at it, it's a head, an, uh, some arms on a knees and a head 
hanging down and you can see clear through the body and you're kind of like okay it looks like he kind of forgot to finish the statue like maybe this was a covid statue and there were like supply chain issues you know and so he like did his best and gave up or i don't know that's that's just kind of weird and so you could just you know at first take this statue at first glance and you might not get it you might ha not have eyes to see it as jesus would have put it and maybe you glance at it and think well that's weird and you walk away and that's that and you don't engage any further you don't give it any more thought you saw it with your eyes but you didn't have eyes to perceive it that's what many of the hearers of jesus's parables did well that was a weird story what was that about oh, i don't know let's go catch some fish right and move on but if you want to understand it maybe you sit with it for a minute maybe you look at it and ponder it maybe you start to ask some questions maybe you see someone else standing over there looking at it too and you kind of start talking about it together and be like what do you see well, i don't know what do you think this is about right maybe you start to wonder who did this why would they do this like this who, who is that person that's sitting there with their head hanging Maybe you come closer and see if there's like a plaque or an inscription or something on it that clarifies this for you. Maybe you shift to the side and you try to like look at it from a different angle to see if it looks different, to see if your, your perspective changes. And if you do those things and you spend some time with that, maybe you start to realize there's something being revealed here. So the artist who created this piece went through a very, very hard, sad, lonely, isolated time when his first wife passed away. And he was in a very dark place and he was grieving very, very heavily. The name of the statue is actually Melancholy. And he created it to visually represent what the emptiness of his grief might actually look like. What he was feeling, how other people could actually look and see, wow, now, he could have just said, I feel empty. But what he did was he sculpted and created something that people could encounter and come away with this really profound experience of what his grief felt like to him. Do you see that here? The cool thing is Jesus's parables can be encountered in the same way. That's why he does them the way he does. That's why he makes them opaque. So how should we encounter the parables of Jesus with just a couple of best practices for understanding them and getting the most out of them. Well, first, we need to encounter them in their context. Context always matters. Remember, we talked about how fables, you can kind of pick them up and pluck them out of, there's not really context to them. They're like these standalone stories. Jesus's parables aren't like that. It is essential to an accurate understanding of his stories that we get the context they're in. And there's more than one level of context, okay? There's like the first century Judaism context that he lives in a specific culture and a specific time and a specific area of the world, and that matters. But there's also the context of where is Jesus actually at right now? What's he doing right now? What town's he in? Who's he talking to? What just happened to him? Like what, what's going on that day who asked him a certain question? What thing just happened that caused him to tell whatever parable you're reading? That level of context matters just as much. And so it's critical that we look both at who the audience is 
and what Jesus is responding to when he tells one of these stories to understand anything about them, okay? So next, we have to look at Jesus' parables, this next best practice, through the lens of them being what we already said that they do, being covert announcements about God's kingdom in some way. So if we're looking at a parable as any form of moral lesson, we're missing something, okay? Because parables were an instrument of Jesus completing his mission. What was his mission? To proclaim and demonstrate and bring about the rule and reign of God on the earth as the king, as the kingdom bringer, right? So these are tools for doing that. And so if we see anything in them that doesn't align with that, we're off. Things like what it's like. We talked about these already. You know, how it's showing up on the scene, how Jesus is the one inaugurating it. And we can have a tendency, and it's okay, we've been taught to do this, so no shame or guilt, but we can have a tendency to approach his parables and, and be like, what's this have for me? What does, wh- how does this parable relate to me and my relationship with God? Like, we're, we're, we're bent that way, right? Like, everything we read and do, we put ourselves, like, at the center of the universe, don't we? Because we do, we're, we're concerned about our relationship with God, right? Like, we're, we want to be good Christians and figure out what this has to say about that. But because Jesus wasn't just a good teacher of moral stories, he's revealing more. And we're not the center of this story. He is. His kingdom is. And so instead of approaching these with that perspective with, you know, like this is just going to be a good moral plumb line for me. I'm going to get my lesson today and he's going to correct me on what I'm doing wrong, you know, or with that question of, well, how, what does this have to do with me and my relationship with God? The main thing we need to be concerned with when we're reading these parables is the question of how does this relate or what does this tell me? What is this parable revealing about God's upside down in breaking kingdom and about Jesus as the kingdom bringer? That's the primary question we have to ask about every parable that we study or read. And then, for those who do have the ears to hear, for then who get that context and that meaning, in God's goodness, he does apply it to our lives. In the goodness of God and the layers of what he does, these parables will shed light on that new kingdom ethic and value system that's a new way of living and being that will inform our behavior and our thoughts and the things we do. So we get both. But that part is secondary to the primary function of revealing something about the king and his kingdom. All right? So we can succinctly say that in this way, that Jesus' parables have a specific meaning in their original context, but they have a significance for us still today. Does that make sense? All right. So are we ready to try this together? We've learned a lot about how to do this, right? About how to approach these, how to look at these. So let's actually look at one. And I I picked a really short one, you know, for the sake of time. So we're going to flip over to Matthew 9. And this parable is in all three synoptic gospels. And it's what we call like the parable of the new garment or the wineskins. So Matthew 9, 16 and 17. This is one of those really short ones. So let's read it together. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. So let's run this through our, uh, our, our what we, all these things that we just talked about. There's distinctives. 
and those questions we should ask. Well, the first thing was, what's the context, right? So what's the context of this one? We don't know. We didn't read it. <laughs> like, that's a problem, right? So if you're pulling these out by themselves, like, you're already at a loss if that's what you try to do. So you have to go back and look at the context. Well, if we back up a little bit to verses 9 through 15, we get the context. We have to understand what Jesus is responding to and why he told this story. That matters. So back a ways up, he's called this guy Matthew, who was just this despicable tax collector, to come and follow him and be one of his disciples. The Pharisees were not thrilled about this. Because this guy is supposed to be this great teaching rabbi, and he's calling these, like, ruffians to be his group? Like, this is really not reputable. Like, what's this guy doing, right? This despicable, dishonest guy that nobody likes. Not only does he come to be his disciple, he goes to eat with him at his house with other nasty, despicable tax collector guys that are working for Rome. So Jesus has got, like, a bad reputation started already, okay? And the Pharisees see this, and they're really upset with the company that Jesus is, is keeping, so they send, uh, well, and there's some of, uh, remember John the Baptist? Some of his disciples are there as well, the guys that were following him. And so the Pharisees are like, why does your teacher do this like this? Like, really, this is the guy you're going to follow? Like, seriously? Do you see the company that he's keeping? And so they question the disciples about why Jesus is doing this. And I guess the disciples are kind of like, well, I don't know, we'll go ask him, you know? Like, <laughs> I'm not really sure. I mean, they were fishermen themselves. They weren't, like, much above, you know, on the, like, society scale. And so his disciples, they come and they ask him these questions about, well, what is this? What are you doing, you know? So there's this, quest this specific question in verses, uh, let's see, let me back up and just read from 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, super scandalous, Many taxpayers and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Man, it's getting worse for Jesus. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, so this gives us a clue, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous. Not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples, these are the John the Baptist, his disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So they're, they're kind of starting to have this view of the Pharisees, like something's off with this guy. Oh yeah, like they don't even fast. We're really good about fasting. Why don't they? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them <coughs> Then they will fast. And here we are, back at our parable. No one sows a piece of uns. Okay? So that's the context. That's what got us here. Jesus has an audience that's all these tax collectors, some of his disciples, some of John the Baptist's disciples, and they're all in this area where they can hear him. And he overhears them having this conversation, right? So that's his current immediate context. And so what is it he's actually responding to? <coughs> Well, he's responding to this question they asked about fasting. So somewhere in this parable has to be something that tells us his answer to this question about fasting, right, and what they're coming at. But instead of giving him a nice direct answer, he tells them this parable. Now, keeping in mind that Jesus' parables are a tool of him proclaiming God's kingdom and him as the kingdom bringer, what's he saying here? So we have two images, cloth and wine. 
Now, I think we can probably perceive he's not trying to help a local tailor and a local wine merchant have their best product. There's something symbolic in these things. And they're parallel bits. We have the old garment and the old wineskin, which, by the way, back then was just like a bag, an animal skin bag that would stretch as the wine fermented. So we have this old garment and this old wineskin that represent the same thing. And we had this new patch from a new piece of fabric and new wine that represent the same thing. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, when you put these together, you see that they're utterly incompatible. You can't put these things together and expect your situation to get better. Neither can you take part of one and part of the other and join them. The result is literally, excuse me, explosive. You put old wine, excuse me, new wine in an old wineskin, everything bursts. And so what Jesus is saying here is that he is illustrating the incompatible nature with his newly inaugurated kingdom, with the old ways of being and living and thinking and even relating to God that the Pharisees were holding on to. They are utterly incompatible. And that's what Jesus is getting at with this parable, okay? You can't take a little bit of God's kingdom and mix it in with your former life and expect that to go well. It's destructive. It's destruction. It will blow up. Right, let me I'll, I'll, can we talk afterward? Because I'm, I'm, I'm almost over time. I'll answer your question. It's a completely new thing Jesus is doing that requires a completely new paradigm. You have to get rid of all the old and let it die and start over completely with the new. You can't just add some in and make it better, okay? Well, in the same way, once we understand that meeting, then we can look and say, well, what does that mean for me? Well, it's the same way as the disciples, or the Pharisees, right? Or the disciples. In the same way, if we're to be a part of God's kingdom, we can't just add a little bit of Jesus here and there to our old life and our old self that needs to be crucified with Christ and call it good. Remember that verse about be hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm because God will spew you out of his mouth. Pick one. You're either old or you're new, but you're all in on whichever one you're in on. There is no in between. So if we're in, we've got to be all in. Following Jesus isn't a small renovation or repair. It's a complete re redoing, a complete getting rid of the old and, and, and going with the new, all right? Those of you who were in um, pre-service prayer this morning, y'all heard me say, oh my gosh, I might be supposed to change what I'm sharing. I'm just going to read you this verse. I'm going to drop it out there and let you guys deal with it and wrestle with it, okay? Because the Holy Spirit's cool like that. So those of you who were in pre-service prayer, it was a lot of you. I want you to think about what Matt said about how non-believers and those who've been hurt by the church or those who aren't following Jesus encounter God's people. And I want you to think about that radical welcome that we were praying about and talking about. In the book of Luke, this same parable has one more line to it. And it says this. So he says, no, new wine must be poured into, old, into new wineskins. And here's the extra line. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For they say, the old is better. Now I want you to let that like just settle in your spirit and chew on that. And maybe go to the Lord sometime this week and say, God, what is that about? What happens to us at first? when we see this new kingdom and we've been really entrenched in the old life and the old ways. So let the Lord minister to you in that, okay? 
That's a really powerful statement. If we wrestle with that, I think it tells us a lot about what Jesus is doing in our lives. All right, I'm going to end with this. One final distinctive of many of Jesus' parables that we really need to talk about because it's the key to the whole thing. And we'll end with this. Jesus' parables, we encounter them as a truth that confronts us with a decision. You have to do something one way or the other when this truth bomb is dropped in front of you. He says, here's who I am. Here's what my kingdom's about. And now you have to figure out what you're going to do with that. Are you going to stick with the old wineskin? Are you going to be the new wine? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with this information that there's a new king bringing a new kingdom? Are you in on that kingdom? Are you sticking with the old ways? We are confronted with an absolutely critical decision. And so were his disciples, so were the hearers then, and it's the same now. What are we going to do with what's been revealed to us? Because this is the crux of the whole thing. Are we going to be a part of his advancing kingdom or not? Because it's like that statue, we can look and walk away. Or we can look and we can engage. All right? Are we going to follow Jesus as the king? Are we going to continue doing the things the way we've always done them? Are we going to continue to be bound in our state of brokenness and enslaved by our sin? Or are we going to find a new wineskin? Are we going to embrace this new way of life or not? This new way of living and being, this new ethic, this new value system that the kingdom of God endorses? And who will we place our trust in for our eternal future? The king or ourselves and our own understanding of these things. This is the absolutely life-changing aspect that we saw happen when Jesus shared these parables and the people who had ears to hear said yes versus those who walked away. And even today, 2,000 years later, these parables, as we encounter them with ears to hear, can completely change our lives and our path. But we have to be confronted with a decision of what we're going to do. And we have to choose the way of the kingdom. So what's our response? What do we do? And that's where I leave that with you guys. We have a choice. Do we embrace the kingdom ethic? Do we embrace his radical welcome and his love? Do we decide to let the old nature die and live only with the new? Jessica, would you mind coming and doing one more song? So let's just sit with that for a minute. What's our response? And these are, you know, we would call this salvation, right? Saying yes to the kingdom. Yes, Lord, I'm going that way. I'm not walking away without eyes to hear. But it's really more than that, right? Because God just wasn't, Jesus wasn't just calling people to conversion. He was calling them to discipleship. So what new piece of Jesus and his kingdom are you trying to fit into an old wineskin that's going to blow you up? Because they're incompatible. All the old junk has to die. The old man has to completely die and be filled with the newness of his life and his kingdom. So Jesus, come. We know you're here, but increase. And Father, help us to see the choices in front of us and what it is we need to choose. Lord, where is it in our lives that we need to engage and encounter your truths and your stories in a way that completely change us? 
Lord, do we need to say yes for the first time? If there's anyone here that's like, man, I, I have always been the one to like look at the parable, to look at the statue, to look at the kingdom and walk away. That can change. You have a choice. You can say, yes, I'm all in, and you don't have to understand it all right away. The disciples didn't, but they kept engaging, and they kept asking, and they kept following. And it's a lifetime of that. So you have that opportunity. And if that's you, we want to pray for you. Um, at minimum, like grab one of those next step cards in front of you and say, yeah, that's it. I, I want to say yes to Jesus for the first time. But then he continues to peel these layers off of our lives, right? These old ways of thinking and being and doing that he wants to renew in his kingdom. The old paradigms we've clung to that he wants to replace with new wine. So Jesus, would you do that work as well? Would you bring to our minds and our hearts the places that we have clung to the old ways, that we have clung to the old, outdated, overcome kingdoms of this world? To say yes to yours and your ways. So come, Holy Spirit. As always, if you need prayer for any of these things or just healing or something going on in your week, like we'd love to do that. We believe that that the Holy Spirit encounters us through each other as well. Um, if there's a couple of you that want to just like come and hang out up front who would be willing and ready to pray for folks who need prayer, if you would just go ahead and come now and do that so that they know that you're here and ready and waiting, um, I'd really appreciate that. Thank you, ladies. So let's just worship for a minute and listen to the Lord and respond in the way that he encounters us and make the decisions that we need to make. These ladies are here ready to pray with you. So come, Holy Spirit, thank you. Do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.